I want to do some review from the book of Acts because I want to set the, set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. The title you may see is Satan Doing What Satan Does, which may sound like an odd title, but uh, at least on four occasions the title has been God Doing What God Does, and then uh, expanding on that. So I want to go back, and I want to highlight Satan Doing What Satan Does because it gives us perspective to what, what may be happening today in our world and definitely what was going on back then. So in, under the section called Review, let's just remember these things. In Jerusalem, which was basically Acts 4 to 12, Peter and John are arrested mainly due to jealousy and greed. The Sadducees and the Pharisees and the synagogue leaders, they were feeling jealous because they were getting more attention or were getting the attention that they used to get. And, and so they arrested them. They put them in jail for a little while. Um, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit or to God. That was highlighted in the scripture. Stephen is murdered. Peter and James are arrested by Herod. During that uh, time of being in prison, James is executed. And then Peter uh, has the miraculous escape. But we're talking about Satan doing what Satan does. And, and I'm going to say right now, I want you to start realizing that it was at, at Satan's, it was Satan's plan it was Satan's goal. It was Satan at work when Peter and John were arrested. I'm sure that he was part of the process of creating the jealousy and greed in the hearts of the Jewish religious leaders. It was Satan who put into the heart of Ananias and Sapphira to lie about the land they sold, how much money they got for it, and what they were going to do with it. It was Satan who stirred the people on, stirred the mob on to... Uh, charged Stephen and then, and then murdered him by stoning him to death. It was Satan who put in, uh, in Herod's heart to have Peter and James arrested. It was Satan who put in his heart to have James executed, and then he would have executed Peter as well if he hadn't escaped through a miracle. Satan was at work in all of this. I don't need to get into any details or speculate how he did it, but I think we can see that these evil things that were happening fulfilled Satan's plan or were moving in a direction that Satan wanted rather than what would we consider God's plan. So stick with me here. In Cyprus, Saul and Barnabas had to debate a sorcerer. Now they, they held their own and they did a good job and there wasn't a contest there, but just the fact that they had to debate a sorcerer, they were witnessing to an official and there was a sorcerer there who kept interrupting them. Doesn't that sound like Satan? In Pisidian, rather than believe, the Jewish leaders again got jealous. They had a chance to say, wow, this is the Messiah. Tell us how we should respond. But no, they got jealous because it interfered with their authority and their position and their power and, frankly, their income. In Lystra, after some really great ministry, things turned chaotic in Saul and Barnabas uh, were mistaken for false gods. Zeus and Hermes. Doesn't it sound like Satan that when, when someone's preaching the truth, he wants to pervert it into something false? Where he was tempting Saul and Barnabas to, to say, yeah, yeah, we are gods. Yeah, this is good. Follow us and reap the rewards. In Philippi, 
The owners of a fortune teller who had a demon exercised got Paul and Silas arrested and beaten. So we're, we're introducing more violence here. In Thessalonica, a mob forced Paul and Silas to sneak away at night. And in Berea, Paul and Silas had to be escorted out of town for their own safety. In Corinth, false legal accusations, they were taken to the proconsul. false legal accusations were made against Paul and Silas. And in Ephesus, where we're going to read about today, we again see a riot, and this time it's fueled by financial greed or economic greed. So what I want you to gain from all this is, is what's next in your notes, one through four. First of all, this is Satan at work. Satan is the one who brings about arrest, false arrest, false accusations, violence against someone who's doing God's work. Satan is the one who speaks through a sorcerer who uses jealousy and greed. Satan is the one who, who riles up a mob. Okay, this is all Satan at work. Number two, this is all a response of Satan to God reaching out with the message of salvation. Every time one of these situations took place, <coughs> excuse me, it was because God was reaching out and sharing the gospel. This was, this was the whole plan in this period of time. This is what Acts is all about. The gospel getting out into the world and moving beyond Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And every time God moved, Satan responded. Number three, this is a pattern that we should expect to continue in 2022 and beyond. Satan hasn't really changed his ways. He might have new names for it and new means by which to do these things, but the pattern is the same. There's still false accusations. There's still lies. There's still violence. There's still evil people that he works through. So all this is happening. This is Satan doing what Satan does. But number four, as we've talked about many times, I want to say it again here. It's the balance of all this. In all of it, in all of Satan's work, response, and pattern, in all of it, the church grew. The church grew. The church became bigger, became more effective. The church grew. People got saved. Synagogue leaders got saved. Priests got saved. Greeks got saved. Jews got saved. Samaritans got saved. Gentiles got saved. Rulers got saved. In, in all of this, the church grew. People got saved. Leaders led. Paul became a leader. Barnabas became a leader. Silas became a leader. Priscilla and Aquila became leaders. Apollos became a leader. Silas became a leader. During all this satanic activity and all the things that Satan was doing to stop this, this surge of the gospel, the church grew, people got saved, leaders led, and God prevailed. God prevailed, which takes us back to all those sermons, God doing what God does. God was not slowed down. He was not stopped. He was not deterred by anything Satan did. But Satan continued to attack. He continued to try to stop what was happening. It's, it's been 2,000 years, and that's still Satan's mode of operations. He still tries to interfere with what God's doing, stop it from happening. He'll use discouragement. He'll use slander. He'll use lies. He'll create circumstances. He'll do whatever he has to. So with that in mind, Satan's pattern and, and God's prevailing, here's the context for today's passage that we're going to read in just a minute. The context is actually 
uh, in Acts 19.10, where it says this went on for two years. What went on? Paul working in Ephesus. The results, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That means that the outlying areas, the entire region, because of what Paul did in, in Ephesus for those two to two and a half years, because of what he was doing there, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It was getting out. It was being effective. Verse 11 says that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. That's part of what was happening. And then verse 21 says, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. That brings us to the first verse, chapter 19, verse 23, about that time. That's the very time we're talking about. While all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia were hearing about Jesus, that doesn't mean they were all responding correctly. It doesn't mean they were all believing. But it means that everyone around knew who Jesus was. They have heard the name. They have a reference. They know Christians. So all over the place... When you talk about Jesus, someone says, oh, I've heard of him, or I know what you're talking about. I have questions. All over the place, there's a reaction. Sometimes it's negative, sometimes it's positive. But about that time, when everyone around knew who Jesus was, and while God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul, and at the time when Paul said, man, it's been, it's been a couple of years, I've been here two and a half years, and I think it's time for me to head on, at that time, verse 23, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way was what they called the Christians at that point in time. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So when the term the way would mean Jesus and his followers. So there arose a great disturbance about Jesus and the church. Verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, which you might also know as, as Diana, a, a goddess, okay, made silver shrines of Artemis. Think about a trinket or a, a little, like, replica of, of the temple, something that could be purchased to take home with you. That's, that would be a shrine of Artemis. Uh, think of, of Buddhism, and they have all the little Buddhas. You can buy a Buddha and take it home, put it on your shelf or in your windowsill, Think of that type of thing, but it's for Artemis or Diana. They bought, so they made silver shrines of Artemis, and they brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So this Demetrius made these silver shrines, and he was part of a group of craftsmen. Okay, verse 25, he called them together, along with the workers in related trades, um, people that, that sold incantations, people that, that made idols, this type of thing, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, a good income from this business. And as I read this the first time about now, I started thinking about, wow, this sounds like today. This sounds like today. No, we don't, we don't have a temple to Artemis where we sell silver shrines. But a lot of our false teaching, a lot of our false doctrines and, and false churches... A lot of the things that Satan uses to get in the way of, of the gospel and of, of Christ, when it all comes down to it, it has a lot to do with making money. And he says, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. In other words, we make a lot of money because of Artemis. We make a lot of money selling our wares. Verse 26, 
And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that God's, gods made of human hands are not gods at all. Why would that be a problem? Because if gods made with human hands aren't gods at all, then why would you buy a god made of human hands? And why would you worship a god made of human hands? So they're cutting this, this new message that there's only one God and you worship Him in spirit and you don't have an idol to bow down to, that new message cut into their business. They were losing money. Verse 27, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, it's like people don't trust us anymore. We're, we're not uh, the top of the heap anymore. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. So he said, we have to protect our goddess. That sounds really odd, doesn't it? That humans have to protect their goddess? Doesn't that just sound backwards? Isn't it the, the god who's supposed to protect his followers? Or the goddess is supposed to protect her followers? But no, they're responsible to protect her. Artemis will be discredited. The temple and, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia... And the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. People won't think of her as a god anymore. So, he's worried about their income. He's worried about his own reputation. He's worried about his god and, and her temple being discredited. And the people will quit worshipping. That's, that's what his issue is. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting. Now this tells us this was not a calm conversation. This was someone whipping the crowd into a frenzy. This was someone yelling. I mean, think of, think of a scene in a movie where, where someone's whipping the mob to action. Let's go get them. We're going we're gonna to string them up. We can't have these people among us. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Since Artemis was being challenged... They chanted back, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar, so it, it, it spilled out into the city, into the community. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Think of a big open amphitheater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. So in verse 28 to 31, several things happen. Um, this meeting that they're having spills out into the city. They get the, the uh, large part of the population uh, whipped into a frenzy. Two of Paul's companions are seized. It's kind of like, we don't know where Paul is, but these guys are with them. Let's, let's get them they go into this big theater, and, and they're having this, this huge thing going on. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Doesn't that sound familiar? When you get down to it, and you hear people uh, you know, into a mob or something, and you ask them questions, they don't know why they're there. They don't know what issue they're... They're protesting. They don't even know what they think about the issue. 
Sometimes they they don't even know what side they're on. They're just part of the crowd. Sounds so much like today. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. (coughs) But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. So you, you think, oh, there's someone coming forward to speak on Paul's behalf, but realize it says the Jews in the crowd. Not the disciples, not friends of Paul, not church leaders, but the Jews. The Jews are always, that's how we identify the, the typical follower of Judaism. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. And they shouted instructions to him. They sent this guy up. And what was he supposed to say? Probably something to the effect of, hey, we warned you about these people. We tried to get rid of them ourselves. Now they're stirring up trouble everywhere they go. They're not part of us. So you need to get rid of them. That's probably what they wanted to say. But the Ephesians wouldn't listen. They just shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Can you imagine hearing that for two hours or just chanting for two hours? Sounds like something you watch on the news, right? Just chanting and, and, and yelling and repeating their slogans. Great is Artemis of Ephesians. Verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is a guardian of the, guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven? They had a legend that the idol that represented Artemis had fallen from heaven. Um, Where that came from, we don't really know. Maybe there's speculation, maybe not, but we don't know. But they believed that the idol they worshipped had fallen from heaven. They put it in a temple, and they they called it Artemis. And, And this guy just says, hey, we know. Come on. We don't have to worry about this. We know that Artemis fell from heaven, so obviously this is our God. Verse 36, therefore... Since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and do, and, and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. These men, which would include Paul and his followers, they didn't attack Artemis. They didn't go to her temple. They didn't say anything about her or her priests. And this guy identifies that. Verse 38, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. In other words, if you, have a, if you have a legitimate beef, sue them. Take them to court. They, they can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. I love it how he says he dismissed the assembly. Like he spoke to them and said, now you're excused. I think what he said to them was more like, now go home. So this guy stands up. His motivation is not to defend Paul or to defend Christianity or to defend the people that were being, you know, on trial, if you will. His purpose was to not get in trouble with the Romans. The Romans did not like rioting. They didn't care who you were. If you stirred up trouble, you were now the enemy. And he didn't want to face the Romans. He didn't want the Romans coming in. And he basically says, hey, 
uh, first of all, these people didn't do anything wrong, and, and that's kind of obvious. And if we don't stop, we're going to get the attention of the Romans, and, and they're going to come in here, and they're going to say we're rioting because we don't have a cause. And if you do have a cause, all you have to do is sue them, and you can take care of it. So this guy steps in with this reasonable logic, and he ends the riot. So, so what's going on here? I, I gave you the storyline and some interesting things. Let's look at our notes again. Let's draw some conclusions and learn some lessons. So things you shouldn't miss. Number one, Demetrius's beef with Christianity was that it cut into his financial success. I mentioned this. This is often the case. When there's people protesting, when there's people that are all upset about something and, and they won't let it go, a lot of times you can back it up to the money. Who's making money? Who's, who's raking in the dough? They're the ones that don't want this thing to end. They don't want it to go away. Who's, who's um, selling the solution? Demetrius was, was losing his finances. I would say it can go farther than that. When, when people are stirring up trouble, it's rarely a legitimate cause. It usually has something to do with their own personal gain at risk. Number two, his stated beef with Christianity, or Demetrius's stated beef with Christianity, was upholding the reputation of the silversmiths, that the temple would be discredited, and that Artemis herself would be toppled as a goddess. Again, I bring up the, the idea that if, if she is any kind of a goddess, if this is, there's any reality to her being a goddess, she does not need to be defended by them. Right? And isn't that interesting? I was thinking about it. We don't run around defending God like his life depends on it. We defend our God like someone else's life depends on it. We share the gospel. When we try to convince someone that God is real, that he exists, that he tells the truth and he has a plan of salvation, it's so they can be saved. And, and, and we represent God and we worship God because he saved us. We never go into a situation and we feel like, man, if we don't win this argument, God's going to die. God's going to go away. God's going to become irrelevant. Even if we go in unprepared and we get beaten down by our opponent, we still walk away and we say, man, I didn't do very well today, but God is just as real and powerful and important as he was before I started and I need to do better next time. A completely different attitude and different approach. Bottom line was finances. His stated reason was defending Artemis. And it's all because Paul taught that gods made of human hands are not gods at all. And the people believed him. I want to say that Demetrius probably could care less what Paul really believed. Could probably care less whether he believed in Jesus or not, and a lot of things like that. What he cared about was that other people were believing. And he only cared about that because it was, it was cutting into his income. I don't think people that oppose Christianity today really care if we believe in God. Because it doesn't hurt them spiritually if we believe in God. Okay, they are still making their own spiritual choices. They still have that complete freedom. I don't think they care what we believe until it interferes with their lifestyle. 
or with the laws of the land or with morality that's being talked about in public or their income. I think people care about our beliefs and our practices because it's infringing upon their perceived freedoms and, and their potential income. And I'll illustrate that in a, in a little bit. I think we need to be aware of that. Often, Satan's motivation is spiritual, but he creates a, a financial motivation or a power motivation or an influence motivation in someone else's life. And the only time we are really at odds is when we are convincing people that the gospel is real and that God is real and that changed lives are, are available. That's when Satan gets excited. Not just when we live our lives and we're happy-go-lucky people that mind our own business and don't cause any waves. I, I don't think Satan could care less if that's all we're doing. If we have our religion in our house and in our churches and we don't try to tell people about it and, and try to change the world and, and try to represent Christ out in public, I think if we keep it private, Satan's going to be really happy and he's going to leave us alone. And if that was our goal, if our goal was for Satan to leave us alone, that would be our game plan. We, we just wouldn't talk about it in public. It'd be a private thing. But God has not called us to be private. He's called us to be public, and that's when Satan gets excited. When people's lives are being changed, when the gospel is going out, when God's work is being done, then Satan does what he does to try to get in the way of that. So number three, Demetrius' true motivation was masked by statements that sounded much more noble than simply saying, I want to continue raking in the money. And, and we'll see that. I mean, there's so much of, of this passage that just reflects our own culture. People get on the, on the news, they, they get on TV, they get on Facebook and Twitter and all those things, and, and they, they sound really noble. And they sound like they really care about something important. And they sound like this is the issue of the day. But they're really just protecting their own interests, which, which may be financial, it may be a position they've acquired, it may be power they've accumulated. We can sound very noble when in fact being very selfish. Number four, much of the riotous crowd were simply caught up in the moment and, in, and engaging in an emotional response, unaware of any truth or context. I was surprised to read this when I saw it again in this passage. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. And I thought, man, we, we've seen the videos where some guy with a camera and a microphone goes out and goes, hey, what are you protesting today? And some people actually say, I don't know. Or they say, what does your sign mean? I'm not sure. Well, how do you feel about this? Oh, I think this is this and that. Oh, well, then that goes against what you're protesting. Oh, I didn't, you know, they just, it's, it's amazing how people will get emotionally involved in something when they don't even know what they're talking about or they don't even know what they're protesting against. They just get caught up in it. And I think that happens. Number five, God once again used a government official to stop the riot, but his motivation was not spiritual. It was self-preservation. I thought that was so interesting. That was so interesting. God used a non-religious person to solve a spiritual problem so that Paul and his companions could continue on doing what they did. And I thought, have we ever seen that today? Do we ever see that today? 
And the truth is, it takes very little imagination to see these same motivations and tactics at work today. A, in your notes. Demonstrations and violence in response to Roe being overturned. It's only been a few weeks since Roe was overturned. And, and instantly there were protests, and there continued to be protests. And what did the signs say? They hate women. People hate women. Well, if you ask questions, it's not hating women. It's actually more loving to help a, a, a woman who's pregnant and doesn't have the support of her family to have the baby and be able to raise that child or give it up for adoption. The, the, the history has shown, statistics have shown, there's really no question that an abortion damages the mother and the father. You know, we kind of lost track of the dads because they didn't want to be counted in any surveys. But statistics have shown and history has shown that the dads who lose the babies also suffer. So there's a lot more suffering due to abortion than there is any freedom or answers gained. But it's about hating women. It's about civil rights. We have to protect the life of the mom. Well, what about the life of the baby? We ask questions like that. Demonstrations and violence in response to Roe being overturned. And isn't it interesting that a government agency called the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade? And, and if you look at the Supreme Court, you may think, oh, we finally got a bunch of Christians on the Supreme Court, and they did this for religious reasons. Well, I'm going to tell you that's not true. They may or may not be Christians. It's hard to tell sometimes, to be perfectly honest. They may or may not be Christians. But it was overturned based on a legal matter. Was it constitutional or not? They didn't actually say you can't have an abortion. They never said abortion is illegal. All they said was the federal government is not supposed to make this decision. The states should. And now every state gets to make the decision. God used a political body to intercede and stop something that was going in the wrong direction. Very interesting. He did it back then, and he did it today. B, the abortion industry, trying to sound pious and noble about their cause, when it's really about protecting their money-making industry and godless lifestyle. Abortion is a money-making industry. Billions of dollars flow into the abortion industry. Yet, and that's from the government and from donations and from organizations, yet every mom who goes in still has to pay the money for the abortion. Somebody has to pay. It is a money-making industry, and that's what is being protected. As well as a lifestyle that says, I can live how I want, and there is an out if something happens I don't want to happen. And then see, so many people, when asked point-blank, have no idea what they're really protesting against or demonstrating for. They don't, they don't know when life begins. They don't have an opinion of when life begins. They talk about the science in every area except abortion because science says life begins at conception. Every biology book ever written and read by a medical person has said that. It still says that today. That hasn't changed. But we don't want that science. We don't want that science because it goes against what I need. It goes against my, my income. So 
we're going to tell everybody it's, it's not the same. We have no idea what we're talking about. The, the, it, it amazed me. The French people, the French officials came out and they said, America has done a tragedy to its people by, by overturning Roe versus Wade, and, and now everything's going to be in chaos. Uh, really just saying that, that we've gone way too far. In fact, it's harder to get an abortion in France than it is now in the United States. They weren't even consistent with their own practices, yet they were speaking Probably, in, like it says, not even knowing why they were there. Not even knowing what was going on. Some shouting this, some shouting that. This kind of thing is going on all over the place. Now, that's the issue that's in the news right now, so it's very relevant. It was easy to come, come to. Think back to the riots. Same kind of thing. Think, think back to all the issues. Racism. Think, think of, of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Think of a lot of things that have been in the news, and, and we can see these same things happening. Where Satan is at work to draw the attention away from God by making everything sound worse than it is, making people sound better than they are, interfering with what God's doing, and all the time, if he can get our attention on those things, we forget about what God's doing. And, and this takes us to Paul's response, which is the example that's being set, and this is where we need to end up. Even though I spent time talking about it here, the point is not to convince you or anything else about an issue. The point is that Satan is still doing what Satan does. Satan is still interfering in any way he can to thwart God's plan, to get attention away from God. What did Paul do? Well, verse chapter 20, verse 1, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for his disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and sent out for Macedonia. So what did he do? Well, if you go back, verse 21, it says, After this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Acacia. After I've been there, he said, I must go to Rome also. So two verses before all this took place, and one verse after all this took place, say the exact same thing. What did Paul do? Well, number one, he let God make a way of escape. And I put it in caveat there, after wise counsel and advice, because what did Paul want to do? Paul wanted to rush right in. He wanted to rush right in, which is kind of normal for Paul and, frankly, kind of normal for us. You know, I'm, I'm going to fix this. I've got things to say. I can sell this right now. And he wanted to rush right into the theater, and he wanted to, he wanted to tell them, What's what and how's how and, and, and who knows what he thought he was going to say. But his disciples, the people around him, said, no, Paul, don't go in there. If you go in there, you're going to stir things up. You're going to get us all killed. And then his friends in the government said, Paul, don't go there. This is not a winning situation. Stay out of the way. And so Paul heeded the advice and stayed out of the way. And what did God do? He brought this guy in who's the clerk of all things, whatever that means the city clerk, and the city clerk said, hey, you know what? This is ridiculous. You can't be here. You can't be doing this. If you have an issue, take him to court. The pro-counsel will decide. Otherwise, you need to go home and get out of here before we get in trouble for rioting. Now, go home. And some guy from the government solved the problem, and he didn't even know he was working on God's behalf. So what did Paul do? He let God provide a way out, provide the escape. And then, too, he continued on serving 
preaching and evangelizing as if nothing had happened. So when the crisis was averted, he went back to preaching and evangelizing. Why? Because that was his purpose, and that was the most important thing. The most important thing to Paul was not going back to correct the political situation, going back to find those people and set them straight. The most important thing for Paul was to continue on. So he went to the next place. Everybody in Asia already knew who Jesus was. And they were now capable of making a decision of whether to follow Jesus or not. And he was leaving leaders in place who could lead them. So Paul's work was to spread the gospel and share the gospel and be an evangelist. So he went on to the next place. Now, our job may not be to go on to the next place, but our job is to continue ministering, to continue serving, to continue to do vacation Bible school, to continue to have Awanas, to continue to do youth group, to continue to meet in church, to continue to invite people to church, to continue to represent God at work and in our neighborhood and wherever we go, to continue praising God in our daily voice, in our daily language, no matter who's there, who's listening, to continue praying before a meal in a restaurant and at home, to continue writing letters to friends and encouraging them and praying for them, to continue being Christ's representatives. Our job is to continue doing what God has called us to do in spite of what's going on in the world around us. We need to let God deal with and solve the issues that are about. That doesn't mean that we are unaware and we're, we don't have opinions. But ultimately, we let God deal with these things. And we do what God has called us to do. So here's the application. Even though Satan is going to do what Satan does, and he will. No doubt about it, he will. Even though Satan is going to do what Satan does, God will also do what God does. Beyond the shadow of a doubt. God's going to step in. He's going to intervene. He has a plan. If I suffer, it's because it's God's plan. If I, if I suffer, it's according to God's will, and good things will come from that. Even though Satan's going to do what Satan does, God will also do what God does so that you can keep doing what God has called you to do. So, do it already. Throw a little New York accent in there. Do it already. I mean, it's just do it. We need to keep doing what God's called us to do. And we don't get discouraged and we don't stop. We keep sharing the gospel. We keep witnessing. We keep praying. We pray for family members to be saved today. That's a prayer we do not stop praying until those family members are saved. And then we pray for their, their spiritual growth. We, we will not stop our ministries because we're trying to raise people up, train them, disciple them. That will never stop. We're never going to stop praying for the unsaved. We're never going to stop evaluating church and how it's going and what we need to be doing so that we're reaching out and serving God. We're never going to say, hey, you know what? If we, if we just stay private, keep our nose clean, and don't cause any trouble, people will leave us alone. We're not looking for trouble, but we're not hiding from it either. If trouble wants to find us, we're here. And that will be according to God's plan, and then he will provide an answer. We, we, we live like God's in control. And Paul was a great example of that. And that's, that's the application today. Whatever God has you doing, don't stop doing it. No matter what the opposition may be. Because here's the big, I mean, here's kind of the obvious truth. Maybe I do need to say it. 
Satan's going to do his best, and he's going to lose. God's going to win every time. And in the end, God wins big, and Satan loses big. And that's really all we need to know. And we're going to trust God to walk us through the process because he's sovereign. Because he doesn't make mistakes, and he's never caught off guard. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage about a riot in Ephesus. Just letting us see one more time Satan trying to to get in the way of what you're doing. And one more time, how you don't allow that to happen. Now I'm sure for these two guys that got drugged into the theater, and, and an angry mob was yelling at them, I'm sure it was not pleasant. And I'm sure they were scared. Maybe feared for their life. And I'm sure Paul was anxious not being able to run in there and do something about it. But you had everything under control. And you brought this guy up to speak, and he he put it all away. And everyone went home. And then Paul was able to continue. I pray that you'll put in our hearts to trust you, that you have your guy in place to do what you need him to do so that we can do what we need to do, and that Satan's plans will be thwarted and not yours. Help us to serve you well and, and consistently, and I ask that you will use us. Holy Spirit, let this sink in and, and, and bring, the, bring the direct application into our own lives and help us to not be afraid, but to serve you boldly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.